0: I'm not sure who else will be uh, coming in uh, tonight. So let me open this up in prayer and then we will begin. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this evening that we're able to um, study more of um, our church history, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you have been working uh, with your church for ever since. Uh, the beginning of the world, Lord. We thank you that you are a good God, Lord, and that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, Lord. I pray tonight as we look at how the Reformers understood Scripture, Lord, that we will ultimately remain faithful to you in everything we say and do. I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. Um, Could someone just close the door in the back? I feel like there's going to be a lot of noise coming in through there. All right, so... Uh, Tonight is the first week of the Reformation era. So you can see uh, tonight we're talking about Scripture um, in the Reformation era. So last week, Pastor Sam talked about Scripture and tradition in the medieval era, and now we're still on Scripture. I will be talking a little bit about tradition, but I want the main emphasis to be on Scripture tonight, then on now the next era, Reformation era. Um we will be talking about three of the main uh most popular reformers tonight. Uh you can see Martin Luther, Aldrich Zwingli, and um and John Calvin. And so those are the three we'll be looking at. Uh just a quick preview, but before we do that, I want us to talk about the actual um subject at hand, which is scripture. Uh, and I want us to talk about what do we believe about Scripture. There's the fancy term sola scriptura that we sometimes use. It's a Latin phrase. I want us to talk about that as well. So if you're following along, look at the first part on the note sheet, and let's try to answer some of these questions. What do we believe about Scripture? Let's start with that. I know it's a broad question, um but what are some of the things that we could say what do we believe about scripture what do we think scripture is It's the word of God Yes that's a great place to start Inspired It's inspired Yes what else about the word of God It's true It's true Yes it's inspired it's true So to complete it's complete. All right. So if we call this collection of 66 books a closed canon, um, it's a canon, it's a collection of books, and it's closed, meaning we don't add more to it. All right. What else? Some of the main things I wrote down um, here and how I would answer this, uh, you guys all gave great answers. Um, is that it's authoritative, right? It's where our source of authority comes from. Um, It's inerrant. We already said that one. It's without errors. That's what it means. It's without errors. So there's no mistakes in Scripture because we believe it's from God, right? So we take it as authoritative and without error. Um, We also say it's sufficient. What do we mean when we say that Scripture is sufficient? It doesn't require more additions to the Bible. Okay, so we could talk about the fact that it is a closed canyon, as we mentioned earlier. Um, is that what you meant by additions? Yeah, what else could we mean when we say sufficiency? When we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture? all we need. Yeah, it's, it's all we need. Yeah. The Lord knows more, but he gave us what we needed. Okay. Yeah, I think you guys have uh hit the nail on the head really well right there. Um, and this is kind of going off a quick rabbit trail, but there's something called the regulative principle of worship and how we come to God for our worship. And that teaches that Scripture alone regulates how we are to worship. Um, and therefore, only the things that are prescribed in Scripture are the things we are to use in, re- in worship. There's that position in um, opposition to the normative principle, which teaches that yes, Scripture is the authoritative word for worship, but that doesn't mean we can't express our worship in other ways that aren't explicitly prescribed in Scripture. But that's a kind of a side note discussion that we won't be having. But you could just see that's an implication to sufficiency of Scripture discussion. But you could see Second Timothy. 316. I feel like this is a passage we have to go to uh, when we talk about um, these matters. And we see a lot of things we talked about kind of wrapped up in this verse. We see the sufficiency of Scripture in this. We see the authority of Scripture in this. We see the inerrancy of Scripture in this passage. So it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. There's a sufficient idea, right? We are, we are made complete through scripture alone, equipped for every good work. So you don't need scripture plus this new discipleship program in order to be made complete, right? It's scripture alone that allows us to may, be made complete. All right. Solo scriptura. Who has heard of that term before? And what does it mean? In Latin, it looks like only scripture, solo, and scripture. Okay. Only scripture, and it's Latin. Does anyone want to say anything more about it? That's true. That's right.
1: But does anyone want to more? Yes. It's one of, like, the five solos. Yes. Yeah, so
0: there's... Five solas that we refer to when we talk about the Reformation era. This is one of them. This is one of the main ones. Um, Sola Scriptura, referring to in Scripture alone, is where we look to for our source of authority. Uh, We might get to some of the others during this era in the next coming weeks, but this is one of the five. Um, So, a quick definition that we could give for Sola Scriptura is... Scripture alone is the ultimate authority for faith and practice in the Christian life. That's what it's talking about. Scripture alone is the ultimate authority for faith and practice in the Christian life. So where do we go to to look to see how we are supposed to act, how we're supposed to live, um, what we're supposed to believe as Christians? Scripture, right? Scripture. All right. Uh, Let's look at this next section. Obermann's Tradition uh, 1, 2, and 3. This is going to be new material, uh, I believe, for everyone. Um, Obermann is a scholar, um, I believe a Dutch theologian, um, who has already passed away. I believe he died in the early 2000s. But... He is known for suggesting these three different types of ways the word tradition has been understood in the Reformation era specifically. So we talk about our source of authority. Is it found in scripture alone? Is authority ever found in tradition and the way the church has done things? Um, He, I think, rightly has identified three different ways This has been understood in the Reformation era, what we mean by tradition. And when we say tradition, not everyone meant the same thing. And I think these three definitions are helpful here. So let's look through what these are, and then we will um, talk more about them as we look through the three reformers for tonight. So T1, what he calls T1, Tradition 1, is the belief that tradition is a maidservant to Scripture, which alone, referring to Scripture, which alone is inspired by God, and therefore the church's final authority of faith and practice. So we see in Tradition 1, many people would refer to tradition simply as um, it's still authoritative in the sense that it serves Scripture. Um, There's still room and purpose for church tradition, but it comes underneath the sufficiency of Scripture, and only Scripture is inspired. Tradition two, you can see, is the belief that tradition is another source of inspired authority, which includes all the different things that the Roman church would include in that. You can see that there. Uh, And then tradition zero... You would think, you would wonder why it's not just called T3, but it's T0. But you can see why when you look at the definition, really. It's no tradition. It's a belief that tradition has no place when determining authority. It's simply, they put up, some of the people who would fall under the T0 category would put up tradition versus scripture. It's one or the other. You can't have both mentality. Um, and so thinking about sola scriptura this is a doctrine that the reformers um, that we'll be looking at taught and they fought over Um, what tradition do you think that they would fall under sola scriptura yeah so T0 T0 T1 or T2 so T0 here on this side what else, what are some of the thoughts? Well, I think Tradition 1.
1: Tradition
0: 1. Because <clears> it's not in the <throat> scripture. All right. So I hear two different positions, uh, ideas. Does anyone else want to chime in and say
1: they agree with? with we exist in a T1. I don't I know whether or not they have her. Because there is a lot of tradition we still can maintain.
0: Yeah, you'd have all the same problems they had in the early church if you didn't have tradition, because you'd be continuously rebuilding that frame of knowledge. If you're not carrying the Nicene Creed and those early councils forward, you're going to keep having those same discussions over and over again with every generation. Yeah, so tradition is helpful in that regard, right? So the Reformers did... Propose T one. They fought for T one, and so sola scriptura. What they meant by that is really what is articulated in T one. Um, yes, we should hold on to different creeds and confessions that are helpful uh, to help guide us um, to know God. But ultimately, I mean, they're not inspired word. They're not the inspired word of God. Only Scripture is. So Scripture alone needs to be. The guiding factor, what we always need to go to, to authenticate our confessions and creeds, whatever they may be, whether it's in the Nicene, the Constantinople, the Athanasius Creed, all these different historical creeds. But yes, these creeds and confessions and these traditions are very helpful in articulating what we do believe, right? And so, uh, Sola Scriptura would be under T1. However, when the Reformation happened, uh, Reformation is really just these individuals, these pastors, these priests in the Catholic Church saw that the Catholic Church was starting to get a little wacky, and so they went to reform it. right? Um, and they wanted to reform it by looking to what Scripture says uh, and emphasizing sola scriptura, and not uh, T2. They were fighting against T2 with T1. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church put up Scripture and the papacy together as two different um, inspired authorities from God. Uh, So there's something called Nuda Scriptura. What does Nuda Scriptura mean? By just Latin sounds like English, so what would you get out of that?
1: Well, sounds like nude. Yes, <laughs> yeah. nude. So, bare,
0: right? Scripture, as in, um, that's, that would fall under the T1, or zero category, excuse me. Um, there's a difference between sola scriptura and solo scriptura. You guys hear the difference? Solo is the nude idea, where it's only scripture and nothing else. We want to get rid of all the creeds and confessions because they're only man-made. They're not inspired word of God, so we never want to look at those. That's the T-zero idea. Um, and the Reformers did not propose that. Uh, other people that have, or is it just kind of in theory? There, there has been, and we'll get to that. Actually, we'll get to that now. Uh, so when it comes to the Reformation era, yes? I'm just thinking of the ordinances Mm-hmm. And those sort of fall—I don't know that I would call them traditions because they're in the Bible; they're inspired. Yeah. But how does that, like, how would somebody, or this guy with T zero, how would they explain the ordinances? You're talking about like Lord's Supper, baptism, yeah. ordinances. Yeah. Well, they would say, well, since Scripture does talk about them, we should, um, we should continue them. So, w- so they would continue them as traditions, even though tradition has no place. But it's okay because it's in the Bible. Yeah, so only tradition that's explicitly mentioned in Scripture what we are to do. So T0 would be more so fighting against, like the ancient confessions, and say that we, can't, we shouldn't look to them at all. Um, there's no authority in them. The T1 category would say, well, the authority that's in those ancient confessions that are helpful are only in there because they're affirming what Scripture says. Um, and so, when it relates to the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, the T0 group, some of them would still hold on to those ordinances. The T0 group so <clears throat> would fall under a category that many people would call the radical reformers. So within the Reformation era, we have the magisterial reformers, and then there's the radical reformers. The magisterial reformers were simply the reformers who tried to reform the Catholic Church. They weren't trying to separate themselves from the Catholic Church, at least not uh, originally. They were trying to reform it, try try to get back to biblical doctrine. The radical reformers um, are normally broken up into three different groups. Um, We are not going to get all into this, so if you don't remember this specifically, that's fine. The radical reformers would normally be broken up into three different groups during this time of the Reformation. Uh, We have the Anabaptists. Have you heard of that before? They normally fall in the radical reformer group. We have the spiritualists. And we have the rationalists. Those are, in scholarly world, the three categories that people put into the radical reformers. So Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, the three individuals we're talking about tonight, they're not in the radical reformer group. They're in the magisterial reformer group, who would hold to sola scriptura, um, trying to reform the Roman Catholic Church from within, but then eventually do leave. Um, so, <clears throat> And I also wanted to emphasize that, though, The difference between sola scriptura and solo scriptura, because I think many times we might think sola scriptura means solo scriptura when it doesn't. It's two different things. So, all right. Any other questions in this first bit before we get to Martin Luther? So, as I said these three guys are going to be proponents for the T1 group. All right, Martin Luther, who is he? You can see the dates when he was alive here. Um, He's an Augustinian monk. He is known for um, spending hours upon hours upon hours upon hours in confession because he was um, scared that he would miss one sin, potentially that he might have done without realizing it, And be condemned. He wanted to be right before God. And this is before he realized he recovered the doctrine of faith alone. That's one of the other solas. um, That we don't have to work our way to salvation. We're saved by faith alone. And so he wanted to make sure he had everything covered in his confession. And so he was known for spending hours in confession. Uh, He's also one of the main names in the Protestant Reformation. Because of the 95 Theses. Um, Does anyone remember or know uh, the year for that? Do I have it written down? I don't have it written down, so good. Uh, Does anyone remember the year? We celebrated the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and we we celebrated it from when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door in Germany. Does anyone I also think about, we celebrated it several years ago. What? 1518? 1517. 1517. Yes, 1517. You're one year off, so super close. Um, Elizabeth and I actually met on a Reformation tour um, in 1517. I'm not 1517,
1: 2017.
0: <laughs> wow. On the 500-year anniversary.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, thank you.
1: And I remember when you were married. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: Uh, but that's when we, we met on the 500-year anniversary in 2017. So that was pretty cool uh, to be able to see a similar of these places. Uh, so a lot of these places that I'll actually mention briefly with Martin Luther, we were able to go to and see, and um, it was just definitely a fun time. Uh, so 95 Theses. Um, I was going to read a little bit of the 95 Theses, but I don't want to... Take up all the time. Uh, Philip Melanchthon. Has anyone ever heard of Philip Melanchthon before? Philip Melanchthon is kind of like the arm in arm buddy with uh, Martin Luther. He was more of the systematic theologian, the one um, who wrote a lot of theological works w- along with Luther. Um, I mean, Luther wrote a whole lot, too, but uh, Philip Melanchthon wrote a lot of theological works. He was more of a systematic theologian in that regard. Um, let's see here. We have I have on your note sheet conflict with Cajun in Augsburg and Eck in um, Leipzig uh, in these prospective years. So Cajun, he had a conflict with or a debate with. You could see this happened after 1517, obviously, he, after he nailed the 95 thesis so KJ corresponds with 1518 Eck corresponds with 1519 on your note sheet and these are different uh, Catholic um, leaders who were trying to defend the Catholic position and defend the fact that as they thought the Pope has inspired authority and Martin Luther was challenging that. So that's why these conflicts were starting to arise and some of these debates were starting to arise. Uh, Eck said that Scripture derives its authority from the Pope. And if you remember some of the um, weeks that we've talked about Scripture and tradition in the past with Sam leading a lot of them, he showed us or taught us that uh, the Roman Catholic Church would teach that we have the scripture because of the church. The church is the one who collected these books and said that they're inspired and formed the inspired word of God. Um, And so this is X argument. Scripture derives its authority from the Pope or from tradition, from the church, the Roman Catholic Church. Obviously, Luther doesn't have any of that. He pushes back on him and says, well, no, actually, Scripture um, alone is authoritative because it's from God, and actually, the Pope has no authority when he is separating himself from Scripture. Uh, Luther replies to Cajun. Uh, he says, um, "This is a fun. Oh, this is a true statement, but it's what well, I'm about to read. But it's a statement that you could just imagine how much it would irk." Um, Um, I think he was a cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church. This is Cajun. Luther responds to Cajun's um, defenses of the Roman Catholic Church by saying this. He says, A schoolboy with the scripture in hand had a foundation far superior than if the Pope himself walked by his side. Uh, So Martin Luther is saying that a schoolboy, right, when he has his scripture, the Bible in hand, is far superior than the Pope. <laughs> and obviously, the, they wouldn't like him saying that. Um, there's a lot of snarky things that Luther says, very bold things Luther says a lot of the time. Um, and a lot of cringeworthy things as well that Luther says a lot of the time. Um, so all this happens, like you could see just the years preceding the 95 Theses. Um, And then we have the Died of Worms. The W is pronounced as a V in German. Um, Like when he nailed the 95 Theses on the church door, that's Wittenberg, even though it looks like it's pronounced Wittenberg because it's with a W there as well. But this is Worms, and this is a a place in Germany where um, Martin Luther was brought before the emperor, Charles V, to defend himself of his writings that were now being brought into question. And really, what they wanted Martin Luther to do here at the Diet of Worms was uh, just recant. They told him to recant his positions um, and you will be spared. You won't have any trouble if you just recant. Um, And I have here... His response, at least part of his response. I also I have a lot of this in Martin Luther's works right beside me if you are interested in reading it. It's a lot of detailed works of um these different debates I had mentioned with Cajun and Eck, but then also Diet of Worms, you could read about here. But Martin Luther responds talking to Charles V and all of those there as well, representing the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, saying, well, what works do you want me to recant? Because I've written a lot of works. I have some works in this category, this category, this category. So he's kind of just prolonging it, um, even though he probably knows exactly what they're trying to bring to his attention. But then they said, just give us an answer. Will you recant? And so this is his then brief answer to that. Um, Does anyone want to read this out loud for us, this paragraph? Thank you. Since then, your serene Majesty and your Lordships seek a simple answer. I will give it in this manner: neither horn nor tooth, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason. For I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since since it is
1: well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe. no right to go against, go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. My God, help me. Amen.
0: So, he doesn't uh, recant. And so, you might have heard of this, I'm not sure, but one of his famous biographies written on Martin Luther, is called, Here I Stand. It's a famous statement that Luther says, and we just read it here. right? This is, uh, a statement he says when he's at the Diet of Worms in fifteen twenty one, when he's talking to the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, and so you can see that there. And so, this is a biography on Luther. I would recommend if you're interested. And so, um, this is Luther, and you could see there's a lot more. Obviously, he lived a lot more life after this. Um, right after this, actually, right before the Diet of Worms, he was already he was excommunicated from the um, Catholic Church. Uh, So he was already in that way outside of the church. And then after this, um, he was in big trouble at this point. And so then he hides uh, in uh, Wartburg Castle in Germany. So he goes into hiding right after this, where really no one knows where he's at for a couple years in Wartburg Castle. Um, And he goes there in 1521 uh, I forget exactly when he leaves, but he's there for a year or two or so. And it's during that time then where he translates the Bible, the Greek Bible, into German. So that average person could start reading the Bible, which is revolutionary during uh, their time because uh, really the Bible was just meant to be able to be read by the clergy. Uh, and if you went to know what the Bible said, you had to go to church and hear it um, through the clergy. Many times, the clergy wouldn't really know the Bible well because they had to know Latin well because it was only in the Latin Vulgate language. It wasn't in the vernacular, the modern language, or the language for the everyday person. So here, the Bible's starting to be translated in in the everyday language that people could understand. All right, so... Um, Now we're going to Aldrich Zwingli. Has anyone ever heard of Aldrich Zwingli before? All right, so some. Uh, He's not as well-known as Luther, obviously. But you can see here his dates of when he was alive. Um, So we say that Zwingli, I mean, Luther was in Germany, as we said earlier, right? Uh, Where is Zwingli? Um, Do you know where Zwingli is located? No, yeah. Uh, Zwingli is in uh, Zurich, Switzerland. Yeah. Um, So on the Reformation tour, Elizabeth and I also got to go see Zwingli's church in Zurich. Um, And it was, oh, you have a picture of it, of his church. Yeah, so he became the preaching pastor in Zurich in 1519, in 1519. Uh, and there's this famous, another Latin phrase here that's many times attributed to Zwingli, Lectio Continua. Can anyone, based on um, what it sounds like, determine or figure out what this means? Continue. Yep. Uh, Has any lecture and lecture? Does like speech continues or carries forward or something? Yeah, so, I mean, it's really close, right? It's like to read continually. So it's like you read from a lectern, like a pulpit. And it, you could write this down on the line. It's to read continually, or then what it was referring to, to preach scripture verse by verse, book by book. This was also um, a re- something that was recovered from the early church. There was many early church fathers that would preach God's word verse by verse, book by book, but then as the medieval era went on and the Roman Catholic Church um, became the way it did, that was not normal anymore. So Zwingli kind of brought that back, right? Teaching scripture word by, verse by verse, book by book. Um, well, Zwingli um, in Switzerland was opposed as well. Obviously, you're going to be opposed if you're going to try to be a reformer during this time. In um, 1523, they had a town hall gathering to discuss, like, are we going to continue with this person who's trying to reform the church? we leaving the Catholic Church by doing so. And it was voted in the favor of Zwingli, and they kept Zwingli, and uh, Zwingli was good. Um, But there was a lot more pushback, obviously, through the rest of his life in that. But that was in 1523, really, when they um, made that more of an official decision. But here's a question I have for you guys Why do you think the Lactio Continua methodology in preaching proved instrumental to Zwingli's recovery of Sola Scriptura? So, based on what we talked about and how we define these terms, how would you try to answer this question? So as a pastor, you recognize Sola Scriptura is um, true, right? And this is what we want to try to recover and show that the authority is found in Scripture alone, not also in the papacy. So by teaching... Simply, in this way, how does that teach that, the truthfulness of it? He's teaching it. He's modeling it. Right? He's, he's leading by example. He's showing where he's finding the source of authority and what's worth preaching and teaching is verse by verse, book by book from the Bible. And by doing so, he is simply teaching Sola Scriptura. Right? He's modeling it. He's showing it there. Any other thoughts on that specifically? Or Zwingli? We're not spending a whole lot of time on Zwingli. Oh, another side note on Zwingli. This is a quick tangent as well. It's actually in, kind of incredible when you learn about more of the history with it there's this group that was called the Swiss Brethren that was coming out of Zurich, who were kind of the pupils of Zwingli, uh, who were under his teaching from his church. And these Swiss Brethren, what they became known as, became more of the radical reformers that we talked about earlier. And uh, they were pushing Zwingli and said, you're not taking what you're teaching, sola scriptura, to the fullest extent um and since you're not, we're going to, and uh, Zwingli pushed back on a lot of that, a lot of this revolved around believers baptism. The Anabaptists who were considered the radical reformers, or at least one of the segments of uh, of the radical reformers, um, were the ones who would, in their name, baptize again, Anabaptists because they believed in believers baptism, like what we do today. And so they would baptize again adults who were already baptized as infants, because during this time, everyone was doing paleo baptism, or infant baptism, and uh, they wanted to baptize people who actually put their faith in Christ, and that was not looked kindly upon, even by individuals like Zwingli. Zwingli still only thought infant baptism was right, and so There's this one guy, there's actually a plaque to this one guy in Zurich, if you were to go, Elizabeth and I saw it, right along the river. There's a river that goes through Zurich, and it's a plaque to a guy named Felix Manns. Felix Manns was um, someone who uh, was from Zurich, um, one of these Swiss brethren. And he, for his belief on believers' baptism was uh, trying was told he needed to um, recant and to turn back from his beliefs, and he wouldn't. And so he was drowned. He was brought out to the middle of the river right in there in Zurich and was drowned there. And so it's a kind of incredible because the radical reformers were really fighting on two fronts. They were fighting the Roman Catholic Church but then also the magisterial reformers as well. And so they were really caught in the middle in that regard. Um, There are some crazy radical reformers, so I don't want to defend all of them. (laughs) But some of them uh, looked very much like us in what we believed. So that's just an interesting side note. All right, John Calvin. Um, John Calvin, has anyone heard of John Calvin? I think John Calvin is probably just as well known as Martin Luther, I think Zwingli is probably the least known out of the three here. But these, like I said, these three are really the main individuals when you think of Reformation, um, the Reformation era. Zwi- uh, Calvin, does anyone know where Calvin's from? So we have Luther in Germany. We have uh, Zwingli in Switzerland. Uh, where is Calvin from? What? He was not English. It's good, guess though. English name. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds good. What was that? Is it France then? French. Yeah. Yeah. Well, today it's Switzerland um, because the borders have changed. He's from Geneva. Um, So he spoke French. He was a Frenchman from France. But today it's Switzerland. So it's kind of a uh, trick question, in fact, by uh, asking where he's from, what country he's from. Um, So, Calvin, Geneva, Switzerland. Um, Calvin and the church there in Geneva is known well for having like a a pastor internship where they would train up young men, uh, theologically and pastorally, to be pastors and that that would send them out to the rest of the country, of France and then sometimes in other areas outside of the country. And many times during this time... um, they knew that they were really sending them out to potentially die for uh, their theology, for what they were teaching. Calvin is known as a second generation reformer. You could see here, um, he's younger than the other two, uh, Luther and Zwingli. And so he's known as a second generation reformer. That's why he's the third one here in this order. Well, He's in uh, Geneva for a little bit, just for a couple years. And then uh, before Geneva, as um, the city decided that they were going to break ways from the Roman Catholic Church, they they expelled Kelvin. They're like, well, uh, we're not going to have any of what you're teaching because... Um, it's too controversial, and we, we don't want to break with the Roman Catholic Church. So, Calvin was expelled, and he went to Strasbourg. Strasbourg, that was another place that Elizabeth and I got to visit. Um, and he was, while he was in Strasbourg, he was in there for two or three years. Um, he was in Strasbourg from, let's see if I have the dates here, uh, 1538 to 1540. He was in Strasbourg. Uh, and while he was in Strasbourg, it was actually very beneficial for him because he was able to observe another reformer there. I'm not going to really spend a lot of time talking about him, but this other guy who lived in Strasbourg, his name was Martin uh, Busser. Busser um, and he really learned a lot from this individual while he was there. But looking back at Geneva, they realized, whoa, we can't find anyone like Calvin. And so they end up calling Calvin back. So Calvin comes back to Geneva after being expelled there from there originally. And then he spends really the rest of his life in Geneva then. So he goes back to Geneva in 1541. And he really spends, yeah, until his death, 1564 there. So you can see over 20 years then he spends in Geneva. Uh Many people have said Calvin is like a mixture of both Zwingli and Luther. Uh, and you can see this quote here, um, Matthew Barrett. This is a quote from the book that we've been going through, Historical Theology for the Church. You can see, it says, If Luther defended biblical authority in his disputation, so in his different debates, in his different theological works he was writing, and Zwingli... Uh, reintegrated Sola Scriptura through the sermon, through what we're looking at with the teaching book by book, then Calvin was a master practitioner of both. So Zwingli is known, really, or Calvin is uh, many times, like I said, known for being like a combination of the two there. Um, Does anyone know the name of the work that Calvin is famous for writing?
1: There's like one main
0: work, his magnum opus, that he's known for.
1: This is one volume of
0: it um, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. So that sound familiar? Uh, so, this is Calvin's work The Institutes of the Christian Religion. He first published uh, that. Well, he was still in his 20s, which is really impressive. But then, really for the rest of his life, he kept doing newer editions of it and was expanding it. And so, really, the first edition of it was a lot smaller than what it ended up being at the end of his life. There was a lot more expansions to it. Um, And again, here, since he's a reformer, right, he explained that the church um, neither created the canon nor gave... Gave the canon its authority. So, just reiterating what Luther and Zwingli would teach in that regard, right? The authority comes from Scripture alone, sola scriptura, uh, and the church was not the one who gave Scripture its authority. God, ultimately, by Him speaking um, through Scripture, that's where its authority comes from. So, one of the lowest segments in that. Volume I put down here for us to see in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, Book Four, Chapter Ten. It's really four books together for the Christian for the Institutes. Um, I want us to read through this, and then we have a couple questions. Does anyone want to read this for us? This big paragraph.
1: I willingly pass over what they teach on the power to approve scripture for to subject the oracles of god in this way to men's judgment making their validity depend upon human whim is a blasphemy unfit to be mentioned i shall ask this one question if the authority of scripture is grounded in the approval of the church the degree of which counsel will they cite on this point they have none I believe. Why then did Arius allow himself to be overcome at the Council of Nica- Nicaea by testimonies drawn from the Gospel of John? For he was, according to these men, free to reject them, since no approval of a general council had preceded. They bring forward as evidence an ancient list called canon, which they they say came from the judgment of the church. But I ask once more if. In what council was that canon promulgated? Here they must remain in mute. Remain mute. Yeah.
0: So, what is Kelvin arguing here? What is he asking here?
1: He's
0: asking
1: why these men think they can interpret the Bible. He's
0: asking, yeah, like why do we think um, that the church gave the Bible its authority? Uh, he's asking, point me to what council the church determined what was to be Scripture and what was not to be Scripture. Uh, and he is showing you can't point to any council because there was never a council to determine what was Scripture because Scripture was always Scripture. Uh, and that's really why he's making the point here. All right, so let's look at this question How does John Calvin appeal to church history? to make an argument for sola scriptura. leading before the councils before the church was really established of the canon. said long time there was a tradition that was before even the, the standard the catholic church and the councils which was what the scripture was the, the canon
1: was set early.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So he's showing in church history Right, he, he looks back to the earliest ecumenical council. So if you remember, during the patristic era, when we were talking through this, we talked about the Nicene council that happened. Does anyone remember the year that happened? 300 and something, yes. 300, 325, 325 A.D. is when the Nicene council happened. So that's the first ecumenical church council. So he's pointing back all the way to the very first one. He says, even at the first one, there was already a recognized body um, of books that we recognized as the canon. How did he say it? They bring forward an envelope, or an, as evidence, as an ancient list called canon. right? So this was already there. And he looks to the example with Arius. If you remember... When we talked about this in the patristic era, Arius was considered a heretic because of he believed that Jesus really wasn't the son of God. He was the son of God, but he was made the son of God. He wasn't equal with God, but he was fully man created, uh, a created person. And so the ecu- this, this ecumenical council, Nicaea, rejects Arius. So Calvin is looking back at this example and says, the reason they rejected Arius is by appealing to Scripture by appealing to the gospel of John. I mean, in the very beginning of the gospel of John, we see Christ being presented as God himself, right? We'll just have to look at the first couple of verses of the gospel of John. And he's able to do so because even during this first ecumenical council, they recognized the gospel of John to be scripture. There didn't need to be a council to determine first, all right, we'll include the gospel of John, and we will include these other books to be considered scripture. It was already understood. And so that's what the point Calvin is making here. All right. This next question is a little bit more technical and is a little bit more difficult. And some might push back on me on this one. But we'll see what you guys think. How can we understand... um, How can our understanding between the three traditions that we talked about help us not make a self-defeating argument for a sola scriptura by appealing to history as evidence? The reason I said this is a little bit more technical because you might not understand what I'm asking right away. So what I'm asking is someone might say, if you are going to say, Sola Scriptura is true. Scripture is our only authority. But then you look to an outside source to prove that. You have a self-defeating argument because you're showing that you need something outside of Scripture to prove the fact that Scripture alone is authoritative. Um, so we need to first understand how that could potentially, someone might suggest as being self-defeating um, Because if you have to appeal to history, something outside of Scripture, to prove the fact that Scripture alone is authoritative, that's proving the fact that Scripture alone isn't the sole authority, the only authority. Does that make sense? Ish. If you don't understand that, that's fine. So, with that in mind, how can our understanding between T1, T2, and T0 help us not make this self-defeating argument of Sola Scriptura by appealing to history. We shouldn't appeal
1: to history, we should
0: appeal to the Bible, which it says is God's will. Yeah. Well, well, don't we, that the, we don't believe that part. Yeah, yeah. well, um, ultimately, we have to appeal to Scripture for all things, because we know it's the um, ultimate authority, right? Key word, ultimate, right? Everything is tested by Scripture, but, do, are there, but we're not saying, right, we're, in the, we're saying the T1 category. We're not saying so low scriptura, as in we don't recognize any other sources of authority. Um, we appeal to history all the time to, for evidence for things, right? Calvin is doing that here. And so um, we could appeal to history as well such as Calvin is doing, uh, f- to give evidence for the doctrine of sola scriptura. Um, it's not self-defeating uh, because it is another source for evidence even though it's not the highest ultimate source of evidence, which is scripture itself. Again, like, you'd have to relearn the same things over and over again. you have to go through... Is he divine? Is he the son? Those, you'd have to have those questions every single generation if yeah. you didn't do that. Yeah, you're right. And so that's why it's helpful to learn uh, some of the confessions and creeds, recognizing that they're not inspired, but they're helpful tools. So, if you didn't understand fully where I was going with the last question, that's fine. Um, but hopefully it was helpful for some of, so for some of us. So, in the end, is there any questions or comments on this? Right. The main um, thing that we really talked about is sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the ultimate authority for Christian life um, and practice, for faith and practice. And then we just really saw how some of these reformers articulated that, thought about it, preached that. And so... Any final comments or questions? All right. Next week, read this article. I mean, it's really just a page and a half, really. Um, We'll be talking about salvation, the doctrine of salvation in the Reformation era. Um, So, and this was huge as well, right? Sola Scriptura helped us then recover Well, we are saved by um, faith alone, one of the other five um, doctrines that was recovered in the Reformation era. And that will be all for next week. All right? Let me close out in prayer if there's no more comments. Lord, we love you, and again, we thank you for how you've worked in the past, Lord, in your church. Lord, we thank you for Individuals like Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin, even though we recognize that they are also fallen men who have sinned greatly, Lord, before you, but yet you still use them um, in a mighty way to recover many core doctrines of our faith, Lord, that were lost um, prior. Lord, we pray just that we continually fall more in love with your word, Lord, recognizing that it is our sole authority ultimate authority, Lord, our sole source um, of ultimately everything um, in life, Lord, for us. Lord, we thank you that it is without error. We thank you that it is sufficient uh, to fully sanctify us, Lord. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.